The following podcast is recommended for people 18 and over as it discusses the production and consumption of alcohol. A podcast one production. Hey, Kathleen. Here you go. It's good to see you again. Man, this place is packed. I really didn't realise that these urban craft distilleries were so popular. Hey, you were telling me last night why you represented only Australian craft distillers. And most of your producers, they're, they're rule-based, right? So how do they feel about these urban distilleries popping up all over Melbourne and Sydney? The urban distilleries are sometimes the first place that a lot of these people from the city will actually visit. So we rely on these urban distilleries like Starwood or Archie Rose to then talk about their colleagues in, in the country as well. So if this wasn't happening, it would be a very, very challenging situation for rural distilleries and even harder for people to access an awareness of, of these rural distilleries around Australia. Yeah, well, it's good to hear that. They're so supportive of each other. And I guess the only way to let people know about these sort of craft dozy spirits is to spread the word where most of the population is. Ah, oh, David Vitali, how are you, mate? Kathleen said that you run Starwood Distillery in Melbourne. Does Melbourne have much of a history of craft distilling? I actually got my beginnings in whiskey in Tasmania, working with the infamous Bill Lark um, of Lark Distillery. And um, in fact, before I walked into the Lark Distillery, my knowledge of whiskey was well, very, very narrow. It was Johnny Walker was what my friends' uncles played cards over, and Shivers Regal is what we used to give, you know, our accountant for Christmas um, as a gift. So, you know, walking in there. As a very avid craft beer drinker and home brewer, I was kind of struck by how much was in common by craft beer and craft whiskey, you know, at its inception. Oh, good old Bill Lark. He seems to have taught everyone. Tassie seems to have been, uh, I mean, the perfect community for distillers, though, so why didn't you just stay there? I have really fond memories of the people and the place, but it'd be fair to say that I was pining for family and the vibrancy of Melbourne. I'm a Melbourne-born and bred boy, and um, I kind of figured I could live anywhere in the world. But boy, um, you know, the, the Melbourne heartstrings were pulling. So from that perspective, it made sense for us to think about establishing a distillery in Victoria. That was the first point. And then over a period of time, we kind of figured that actually... We were never going to out-scotch-scotch scotch with a castle on the hill. So let's just focus on something that's authentically Melbourne and Australian, which is an urban distillery. So in that context, I started to think, well, why, why is it that we need to kind of be where the ingredients are? That made a lot of sense 200 years ago. But today, good water travels to us in taps. Barley is a commodity that can travel really relatively well. And um, actually the big constrained resource is talent. And so we kind of figured that being in Melbourne would be a great way to anchor ourselves around that. Melbourne's kind of famed for its great craft beers and has been for quite some time. And over time, it, it just increasingly started to make more sense that we'd be closer to our drinker and the audience for our whiskey, which is bartenders, restaurateurs, and, um, you know, great retailers that, you know, really supporting building the brand. Mm, that makes sense. So most of the rural distilleries just use ingredients and botanicals that are local to them. I mean, is that important to you too? Like most great drinks, 
you know, you want it to reflect the place that it's made. So all of our ingredients, the barley, the water and those barrels that we use to mature styled whisky all come from within a day's drive away from the distillery. And if you think about that in the context of Scotch whisky, they're sourcing their barrels from Kentucky or America in terms of bourbon barrels, Portugal for port barrels and Spain for sherry barrels. So instantly, you know, and I've said this once in Glasgow and never again, but, you know, Starwood's more more Australian than Scotch is Scottish because of that provenance. And, you know, it's something that I think all of Australian distilleries share in that regard, that, that we truly talk to the place that it's made. So that was a key point um, that always garners interest when we travel around the world. This is an Australian whiskey in Australian wine barrels. What's been the reaction to finally having a distillery in the city? I would say about 50 to 60% of the people coming in, which was actually a, a little lower than I thought it would be, but still a substantial number given the visitors that we're coming through. It's their first experience at a spirits distillery, not even a whiskey distillery, just at a distillery full stop. People think whiskey comes from Dan Murphy's. So we we have a huge responsibility and you know we take it seriously to kind of build people's awareness of where the whiskey comes from, um, what where the barley um, comes from and how we drive flavour through the process to create a compelling drink. And so um, we can take people along that journey from the farm through the whole process to the bar. That's such a good idea. Look, to be honest, before I met some of the craft distillers over the last few nights, I'd actually never really thought of the amount of time and work it must take to turn grain into good quality spirits. Okay, it's about to get competitive in here. Harriet Lee, you're head of hospitality at the Archie Rose Distilling Company in Sydney. There's always been a healthy competition going on between Sydney and Melbourne, in all things. So where are you guys based and how are people reacting to your distillery? We're in Rosebury in the south of Sydney. There's not a lot of places to go around here, so we have a very loyal following of of our neighbours. And we're also halfway between the city and the airport, so people jump off a plane, get in a cab and come here on the way to the city or vice versa as they're just leaving Australia. Yeah, I've heard you've got a bar in there as well. Do you guys just stock that with your own spirits? We have, I think, maybe 500 spirits on the back bar. Of those, a very large chunk are Australian spirits and we see ourselves as a cellar door for our rural brothers. So um, people might be producing across Tasmania or rural New South Wales or even we've got some stuff from the Kimberley, uh, from the Ord River down in the back bar that are just beautifully crafted spirits. Um, We have a lot of rural distillers that come down to check out what we're doing and also we host them sometimes for them to do talks on their products because we very much believe in the whole industry supporting one another. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny industry in Australia you know, and, and everyone needs to look after each other which I think they do very well in this country. So it sounds like you're close with the rural distillers too then? We kind of see ourselves as educators which I think a lot of distilleries do. I went down to see Peter Bignall who owns Belgrove in Tasmania and he's a two-guy operation him and his assistant and he opens his door in person and gives tours to people who find themselves in rural Tasmania and it's just a generosity I think at the end of the day distillers are people with hospitality running through their veins so we love to talk about Belgrove or we love to talk about lime burners or we love to talk about Sullivan's Cove it doesn't matter how small or how big the producer is we love talking about craft spirits I'd rather be talking about Australian spirits than the great scotch I mean we have both on our back bar but I kind of think people already know what lack of all in is like it's time for them to learn about Sullivan's Cove or yeah Belgrove Dave Withers It's good to see you again, mate. Look, I keep thinking about that Vegemite drink you distilled. I I just can't get over it. You're the master distiller at Archie Rose, but you're pretty young. Being a first-generation distiller must give you a different perspective on distilling. 
So I have this really weird kind of way of understanding the drinks industry in a way. For me, it's all about flavour and science and art and business and all of those things and the stories of the people that produce them and the ingredients that go into them. So it's pretty powerful, really, when you start to think about it. And for me, that's that's where that love comes from. So what inspires you to experiment with new flavours and your spirits? I think a lot of the innovation that we try and focus on is based on history which is you know something I'm really fond of talking about which is that we've got an amazing history of distilling spirits in Australia like we've been doing it for hundreds of years and it's the bit that people don't talk about and in Sydney it's like landmarks like right next to Paddington Town Hall there's Juniper Hall you know which was the residence of James Underwood the first license for legal distilling in Australia so it's these sort of things like you know these kind of signs and cues are everywhere and for us it's all about kind of playing from that history and really doing things a bit differently so we um, try and use a lot of Australian resources and kind of raw materials so we focus on for whiskey one of the big ones is kind of malt um, so the actual grain itself and kind of looking at that and how we can really push that forward and uh, developing conversations with farmers and you know we've done some pretty cool things like in the bar at the moment we are using red gum casks so instead of oak we're, we're using red gum and this is kind of what I mean about the history so um, my dad was a winemaker kind of growing up you know I heard a lot about how during the 1930s they didn't have oak like because the war you couldn't get European and American oak so basically a lot of Australian producers winemakers started using native oak or native wood rather and so we came across this stash of kind of red gum casks and have been able to use that and they're 80 year old casks you know so for me that's a really cool story but the final drinker has to be able to taste that story. It has to taste different to Oak, and they do. But I think that's really important that, you know, you can have this amazing marketing pitch, but the proof is in the pudding, right? Like, if you can't taste it and it doesn't taste amazing, then there's no point in making it. But it sounds like there's a massive risk that those flavours won't work, though. How do you test them? So we, we do a lot of R&D. We basically have two little five-litre stills um, that are really just our playground. They're our sandbox. And we make a lot of mistakes, but the idea is that we make those mistakes and we learn from them and we're better for it next time. So, um, you know, when we were developing our sort of juniper profile, we did 49 individual distillations, you know, slightly tweaking the kind of methods. Uh, it was a bit of a challenge, but... At the end of the day, right, we, you want to make the mistake on a small scale and, you know, it's, um, it's something that we, we put a lot of attention and effort into. So um, we've got guys that really run with it and just distill crazy stuff, like we distill miso paste as well. Another crazy one that I did was uh, I distilled a meat pie, um, which I'm unsure about, but actually I was showing a couple of mates of mine on the weekend and they loved it. They were just, they kept smelling the glass even when there was nothing in it. So yeah, there's something, you know, I suppose just seeing how far you can take something and then when the world pushes back on you, you know, you, you know, pick yourself up and try again. But sometimes, you know, you just can't hit something that's really awesome. Pretty much anything you can stick in a still and you not know, kill someone by drinking it like we've put in that still or are going to yeah it's pretty awesome being a distiller it it's a bit less romantic than what most people think you know um particularly where we are at rosebury you know there's it's pretty manual process and you're connecting hoses and you know pumps and all the rest of it by hand but there's a lot of satisfaction in 
the end of the day when you've got something to show for it. And probably the best satisfaction, I think, is when you get to see it sitting on the shelf of a bar and, you know, getting poured out for someone. And that's, you know, that's a pretty cool experience. David, you started distilling whiskey about more than 15 years ago and it wasn't really popular back then. What do you think's changed? There's been a huge whiskey revival across the categories, be it Irish, which is the most recent one, bourbon and scotch over the last 15 years. So we've had a few tailwinds come our way, that resurgence of whiskey as a category, bigger flavours, people are interested in more bigger flavours than they were, hot sauces are a thing now. Where were they in the you know, early noughties and the 90s that were just wasn't done, right? Coffee. So we've become um, flavour seekers. And I think that whiskey's benefited as a category from that trajectory. It's a lovely, luscious, premium product that you can spoil yourself with. Um, unlike wine, you can put the lid back on a $200 bottle of whiskey and savour it over a period of time. Once you pull the cork on the wine you're committed... You know, so there's a lovely thing about that too in terms of exploring the category that you don't have to spend all of this money all at once. And um, I think the other aspect is just in terms of a younger audience coming to whiskey because they're open-minded about most things and curious. So whiskey's benefited from the whole craft aspect as well. So it's not just about bigger flavours, but it's also I want to learn more about this story and who's behind the brand. Kathleen, I reckon David's right about those stories. Every craft distiller I've met has taken so long to get to where they are, and they're all so passionate about what they produce. We've got to get their stories out there. How can we do that? Bartenders play a super important role in our industry because they are the storytellers of our brands. If they're really engaged with a small producer that we represent, then that is such a bonus for the distillers that we represent. I really would love to see that bartender profession being recognised because it is such a wonderful profession. They're there to help you have a good time in the venue that they work at and also share their knowledge and share... Um, the experience of, of drinking their drinks in, in their establishment. Hey, speak of the devil. We're actually just talking about the great job bartenders do getting the stories of distillers out there. You've got a craft bar called Dolce's in King's Cross, Brandon. Uh, why did you name it that? Dolce Dima was Sydney's Queen of Bohemia, like crowned, christened, written in every kind of newspaper article that was her title. Uh, she came over from... New Zealand, left her husband, left her children, literally to live the life of a Bohemian in King's Cross. She was a bon viant, uh, she was very passionate about the creative community, supported a lot of writers, was one of Norman Lindsay's many muses, uh, established the Australian Guild of Artists and Writers. She famously was told by her doctor after she had a stroke at 75 that she was no longer allowed to do the splits on bars at parties. Uh, she was that kind of chick. She was just super like, confident, super forward, and she was doing everything that a woman in that period of time should never have done. She also pretty much loved a drink, so that's the <laughs> same. It has a pretty unique vibe in there. Everything about it feels like you've stepped back in time. Is that intentional? 
we wanted to pay homage to King's Cross as an area and as it was in the 20s and 30s. In that area, it was littered with bohemians, artists, uh, singers, musicians, writers, actors. And so we took an old space, which used to be the dirtiest strip club on the strip. We decided to kind of take this idea of a local identity and, and foster a, a, an experience around her. So we used the old stage from the strip club uh, and we've had everything from burlesque to tarot readers. We very re- rarely schedule anything and let everyone know because the the energy of the venue is very much focused on spontaneity and and rewarding the people who are here as opposed to creating a crowd that solely just comes for one show and then leaves without even buying a drink. We're a small business in the end and our focus is on spirits and the alcohol and the people who make the alcohol and everything else is supplementary to that. You said you only stock Australian craft spirits. Do you go out and check out the distilleries before you put them in your bar? I would never understand anyone who opens a craft spirit bar and doesn't take the chance to visit the distilleries. Um, This is where you find the most amazing stories. You find out the history, the provenance, what goes in it. Meeting Peter Bignall down in um, Tasmania and seeing how he makes Belgrove and literally seeing the paddock that will be turned into a bottle of rye whiskey is one of the most incredible things that you can do in bartending. Um, And, yeah, like I I wouldn't recommend anyone get into this segment of the industry without taking those opportunities and seeing it. Okay, so you clearly spend a lot of time choosing the spirits, but what happens when someone comes in and just wants a Hendrix and Tonic or a Jack and Coke? It's the bartenders and the bars that kind of take that next step in education and decide to breathe a little bit more interest and intrigue into what people are drinking so that if someone says, oh, I'll get a Hendrix and Tonic, at our bar, we don't have that option. So we give people five options that each marry the same flavour profile of something floral, something herbaceous, something kind of in that same line of Hendrix. But it's something new that people often have never even heard of. And so it gives them something more that they can add to their repertoire of spirits. One of the difficulties in Australia is that we don't have bourbon. But Melbourne Moonshine creates corn sour mash. Now, in our menu, people are like, oh, moonshine, prison hooch. And I'm like, no, like it's part of the rules. And so you have to engage people with that story about why bourbon can't be bourbon outside of Kentucky and Tennessee. And then you have to explain to them that this is what bourbon's made out of and this is where it comes from in Melbourne and this is what we make it into. And at that point, they're either like thirsty because they've had to listen to me ramble for a while or they're like kind of in awe of what effort goes into a drink and the knowledge of these bartenders. So how do you get them to try something new? We give litres upon tastes of spirits to people. There's like a a vodka that comes from Perth, from Old Young's, that's Pavlova vodka. And people are always like, oh, that would be gross. And we're like, no, try it. We would go through a bottle a week of giving people tries of this, like Pavlova vodka, and instantly they're like, this is incredible. And you talk about how it's distilled with all the flavours individually of Pavlova and it's not added and it's the, the everything is vapour-infused and it's that flavour that comes off the still that you're just like, this is real proper stuff. All of a sudden, their their whole worlds expand and it's like you've shown them the Louvre or you've held their hand through Budapest and they're able to, like get this sense that there's more out there and we've got customers who come in now and they just go through the gin list they look at our back bar and they just go through every single one of them and that started solely because we said we didn't have bombay sapphire 
And so they try something new, they like it, they go through that. Like, open yourself up and, I, and you'll see so much more. So do you try and get them interested by saying it's Australian made? We don't lead with being an Australian spirits bar until someone's like, oh, this is a good gin, what is it? And I was like, this is such and such, or this is from here. And from that point, I feel like we kind of are able to capture people better because we're not sitting there, they're not coming here going, oh, that's the Australian craft spirits bar, let's support it. They come here because of good drinks and then they realise the good drinks are just coming from their backyard. Well, guys, let's raise a glass to that. I better go home. I'm up early tomorrow to go see Peter Bignall at his distillery in Tassie. He built it all himself and says it might be the greenest distillery in the world, so I'm pretty excited to see that. Night, everyone. The Aussie Spirit was produced by Podcast One Australia in collaboration with Nip of Courage. It was presented and sound designed by me, Matt Dwyer, produced by Alex Mitchell and written and developed by Jennifer Goggin. Sound production and music was by Matt Nikolic. For more info, go to nipofcourage.com. Listener.